<laughs> well, good morning. It's good to see all of you, and um, I hope you all at home are well. We are thinking of you if you're home due to the air quality or um, concerns about being sick. Um, so we, we're glad you're able to join us uh, via online. This morning we are going to be talking about reconciliation, and we're kind of going to continue the theme of what Trevor was talking about with comfort and suffering and looking at a theme throughout First and Second Corinthians. So we're not going to be in a specific passage for the whole time, but we're going to look at where that pops up over and over in First and Second Corinthians. As I was thinking about reconciliation these last couple weeks, um, I was remembering uh, when a group of us a couple years ago went to the African Film Festival at um, Portland Community College, and they showed they show lots of different films on um, African life and culture, and they're all produced by African filmmakers and producers and writers, and they're, they're really fascinating and eye-opening. One of the films that we watched, though, uh, tracked this one woman's story after the Rwandan genocide. Uh, so if you're not familiar, in Rwanda, 1994, I believe, um, they experienced a transition in their government, and it led through lots of different factors. It led to this incredible genocide uh, that happened all throughout their country. And they had... Um, it predominantly occurred, the tension was predominantly between these two people groups, the Hutus and the Tutsis, and um, at the end of everything being said and done over the course of three months, um, over 800,000 people were killed. Over 250,000 women were raped, and over 95,000 children were left as orphans. And so after this horrendous uh, atrocity had happened. The world kind of looked in to Rwanda and thought, oh my gosh, how could any nation ever recover? How does a nation come back after that? How does a nation pull together after that? But to the Rwandans' um, credit, the government stepped in and was looking around for, you know, how do we pull our nation together? How do we seek justice? How do we make this right or set things right? So they looked at the Western judicial system and were looking at aspects of that, but just due to the nature of the genocide, they did not have enough judges, enough prosecutors, um, enough police officers. Uh, they just did not have the elements that a Western judicial system calls for and requires in order to enact justice. So they decided to go with a different form where they set up these communal hearings and they appointed um, predominantly women to, um, rule as to uh, rule as judges and they equipped them with training in the law. And these women saw, oversaw the hearings, communal hearings in their community. And as a community together, they ruled on what justice would look like. So this is happening in one of these in one particular village and um, it, during one particular communal hearing, um, this woman that the documentary was tracking describes how she was able to bring her case forth, and uh, her accuser was arrested, um, tried, found guilty, and um, was put in prison. And uh, as she was describing that process, um, he was sentenced, I think, to around eight to ten years in prison. She, uh, as she was describing that, it did not feel, to, as the, to the viewer, it did not feel satisfying um, because she began to describe more and more of her story uh, where he was her neighbor. And uh, when the violence broke out, he came to her house 
He murdered her husband, and he murdered her sons, uh, and then he cut off her hands. And so as she's telling this story, she's gesturing with no hands of the things this, this man did to her and her family and to the people she loves. And so she's also describing how prison felt unjust. Prison was not satisfactory to her. And she really wrestled with this. And how do I make peace with this? How do I move on with my life? And she actually started to talk about her relationship with the Lord and how she felt the Holy Spirit convicting her to forgive him. And so over a a gradual period of time, she came to forgive him in her heart, but still didn't feel at peace, still didn't feel like she could move on with her life. So she felt convicted again by the Holy Spirit to go to his prison on the day that he was being released. So this was over a 10-year period. And she went to the prison the day he was released, and as he was coming out of the jail, uh, she met him and explained who she was, and he knew exactly who she was. And she began describing the events of that day and the things he had done and describing to him the effects it had had over the next 10 years on her life and her family's life and these long-lasting consequences that his egregious sin had caused her. And he began to weep. And as she described all of this, she got to the end, and she described how she wasn't at peace. She didn't feel better about him being in jail. And so she described her relationship with the Lord and how he had brought her to a point where she forgave him. And at that point, the man just became undone. And he just started wailing and uh, expressing to her his deep remorse and grief uh, at the things he had done and that he couldn't fathom why or how she would forgive him. And in the documentary, it was this just incredible moment of going, oh my goodness, how can this be? That's amazing. That in and of itself is just incredible, this moment where two people came together, reconciled, and, and made up. Um, and so they kind of go back to the woman um, in the documentary, and it, pan- you know, it zooms in on her, and she's gesturing, still has no hands, um, and she's describing how that brought her a level of peace. But then the Holy Spirit had convicted her again to go one step further in reconciliation, and uh, she told him he could come and live with her and her family. And the documentary zooms out, And sitting next to her is the man. And they're in front of her house. And he starts talking about how overcome um, he was by her forgiveness and her reaching out to him in kindness and reconciliation. And that just absolutely changed his life, changed his perspective on the world. And he was just so grateful to her, not only to be forgiven, but to be included now as someone who could have been considered an outcast in society to be included in her family. And at the end of the documentary, he says, uh, I'm so indebted to be a part of her family. Uh, I am her hands now. And so whatever she needs, I do. If she needs water, I go and get it. If she needs me to cook something, I cook it. I'm her hands now. And it was just astounding to hear this level of not only forgiveness and not only of reconciliation and making up, but of belonging and of including someone in her family that had committed such terrible things. And that's, uh, that's just a crazy story. 
of the, the power of reconciliation and what God can do in a situation like that. And uh, though Corinthians doesn't talk about murder, that's the level of egregious sins we're talking about all throughout First and Second Corinthians, where there have been egregious sin, uh, reconciliation seems unlikely, seems unreasonable, seems totally unattainable. And uh, throughout, the, throughout the letters, Paul really calls the Corinthians to reconcile anyways, to come together to reconcile and be one. So uh, as we talk through Corinthians, um, like I said, we're not going to look at just one passage. We're kind of going to go through uh, both books as a flyover to see where, um, where reconciliation comes up. And in our, normally when we do a theme sermon, we, you know, track a word. Like when we did the fruit of the spirit, we tracked that word through the entire Bible. And last week when Trevor was talking about comfort and suffering, he tracked, you know, some specific words related to comfort and suffering. So he tracked suffering, trials, comfort. Those three words, he found each of those occurrences through First and Second Corinthians. But reconciliation in First and Second Corinthians is a little bit different. If you uh, look up every occurrence of reconciliation in First and Second Corinthians, you get about five occurrences. And so at first it's easy to think, oh my gosh, is this a theme? Um, this only c comes up five times, and three of those times are in the same sentence. <laughs> but um, throughout the book, Paul talks about situations that require reconciliation over and over again. And his goal is to bring up where they've had a division, where they've had a disagreement, an argument that has pushed them into two different camps. And he said, in that situation, you need reconciliation. You need to come together, reconcile, and be one. So we're more, even though the word reconciliation um, isn't going to be in every passage we look at, the idea is, the, the situation is one in which reconciliation is needed. Another way we know that it's um, a prominent theme, Connor, can you help me out here? I think I'm advancing. Thank you. Uh, another way we know it's a prominent theme is by looking at the beginning and the end of the letters. Uh, I know we've talked about that before. Of You can tell something is a really important when the author brings it up at the beginning, and it's one of the last things he tries to leave you with. So Paul does the same thing in First and Second Corinthians. He starts First Corinthians right off the bat by saying, um, I urge you all that all of you agree with one another in what you say and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. And then he closes 2 Corinthians with, Strive for full restoration, encourage one another, be of one mind, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. So this is right at the tip of Paul's tongue when he starts the letter. It's the very last thing he wants to leave them with when he closes his second letter to them. And so we're going to look at not only from beginning to end, but woven all throughout both uh, letters, how is Paul talking about reconciliation? There are, uh, as we look at that theme in those situations, I think two main relationships stick out that Paul is really trying to help them reconcile over. Um, the first relationship is their relationship with him. Constantly, Paul is saying, reaching out to them, saying, open wide your hearts. We've opened our hearts to you. Open wide your hearts to us. Or share the affection we share with you. Share that with us. Um, or I've treated you like a father. Respond to me like children. 
And he's doing this move of reaching out to them in hopes that they'll reach back out to him because there's been a rift in their relationship. And they have suddenly become distrustful and suspicious of Paul as an apostle. Um, And in those passages, we see that they're often... Uh, Their concerns are often related to the gospel. And so uh, we're going to look at um, the Corinthians' relationship with Paul and how Paul is not only trying to reconcile them with him personally, but more so them with the gospel and reminding them what the gospel actually is. Then the second relationship Paul is most concerned about is their relationship with each other. And not so much that they're having personality clashes and they're having trouble getting along, but they are deeply divided over how to do church, how the church should operate, what a Sunday morning should look like, what church should be doing, what Christians should be like. And they're deeply divided over this, and it deeply troubles Paul. And so that's the majority of what we're going to focus on this morning is their relationship with each other and how to bring, bridge those divides and help them reconcile. Let's dive into the first one, uh, the Corinthians' relationship with Paul. Um, Throughout these passages uh, where Paul is reaching out to them saying, reconcile with me, uh, come back to your senses, it can feel like he's often defending himself, which is a little, I don't know for you, but for me it's a little squirmish, like, what do we do with those passages? That's kind of weird. But when Paul sounds like he's defending himself um, throughout his letters, it sounds like he's mainly only concerned with his reputation and what they see of him. That can be tempting to see that. But I think Paul is so troubled by their suspicion of him as an apostle uh, because he's concerned they've focused on the messenger rather than the message. So often when Paul appears to be defending himself, he's actually reiterating or reviewing the message with them, the gospel. Uh, and calling them to return to the gospel and be reconciled. So predominantly in those passages, he's focusing on the gospel. So one of the big passages he does that in is 1 Corinthians 15. So we're going to read that now. 1 Corinthians 15 says, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you when I, rec- when I received, uh, which, I, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas and to the twelve, and after that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles, and last of all he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born. For I'm the least of the apostles and don't even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there's no resurrection of the dead? If there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ hasn't been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. 
More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we've testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead, but he didn't raise him from the dead. In fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead aren't raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ hasn't been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. It's only for this, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people to be most pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For as in Adam all will die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, the Christ is the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the world, uh, then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after, all, uh, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for he has put everything under his feet. Now when he says that everything has been put under him, it's clear that this does not include God himself, who puts everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who has put everything under him, so that God might be all in all. Now if there's no resurrection, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? And as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I face death every day. Yes, just as surely as I boast about you in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus with no more than human hopes, what have I gained? If the dead aren't raised, then let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Don't be misled. Bad company corrects good character. Come back to your senses as you ought, and stop sinning, for there are some who are ignorant of God. I say this to your shame. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that you labor in the Lord. your labor in the Lord is not in vain. So as Paul is reiterating the gospel to them, yes, he's, he's trying to reconcile the Corinthians to himself, but he's way more concerned with, if you don't trust me, if you have suspicions about me being an, being an apostle, then that calls into question the gospel you believed. And no, the gospel is trustworthy. You can trust it. And the gospel does include the resurrection. Otherwise, it's totally worthless. I think this is a really helpful verse where Paul just puts it in a nutshell. That the gospel is that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. The gospel is that we deserved punishment for our sins, and as a result, we were alienated from the Father. So he sent Jesus, his son, to take the punishment for my sin. Uh, Jesus took the punishment by dying on the cross, and he proved he had the power to reconcile us with the Father uh, when he rose again, when he came back to life. And by coming back to life, he gave us the opportunity to have new life uh, with the Father in heaven, which is awesome. And because of God's reconciliation with us, we'll have new life with him forever, forever in heaven with him. And so Paul is so concerned about how they believe the gospel, about whether or not they believe the gospel, uh, because that's where the hope is. The hope is in the resurrection, and that's what makes life meaningful. But 
He also wants them to understand that not only does the gospel change our eternity status, you know, uh, with God forever or not, uh, but it also changes our lives here and now. Paul shows the Corinthians that when God reconciled them to him, he gave them the ministry of reconciliation or made them officers or agents of reconciliation here on earth. And so he really goes into that in 2 Corinthians 5. And he shows the gospel impacts us here and now as well as in eternity. So he says in 2 Corinthians 5, Since then we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it's also plain to your conscience. We're not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. If we're out of our mind, as some say, it's for God. If we're in our right mind, it's for you. For Christ's love compels us because we're convinced that, no, that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone and the new is here. All of this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. So as Paul talks about the gospel and how they need to come back to the gospel and understanding the gospel and be reconciled with him, he's showing the proper way to respond to the gospel is to first receive God's reconciliation and to be reconciled with God. And then to prove that that reconciliation happened and is effective, uh, he tells them to tell others about the opportunity to be reconciled with God and then model his reconciliation in our own conflicts and in our own relationships. Everything Paul talks about in about the gospel in these passages shows that reconciliation is at the heart of our new relationships with God, allowing us to be at peace with God and then allowing us to share that reconciliation with the people in our lives and thereby be at peace with them. Uh, I think Paul calls the Corinthians to return to the gospel, not because they're not saved, uh, but to he calls them to be so changed by this reconciliation they've received that they, in turn, see relationships the way God sees them, and that they, in turn, pursue those relationships uh, the way God pursues them, and they offer reconciliation in those relationships just like he did for them. But that disconnect that they're experiencing, the disconnect from the gospel and how it then affects their lives and does church, um, is the, the next big relationship Paul's concerned about in First and Second Corinthians. But for, he has to start there because if they don't understand the reconciliation that they have received from God, then genuine reconciliation or sustainable reconciliation in their relationships is just not possible. So let's turn to their relationships with each other and what they're arguing over, divided over about how to do church. We're just going to do a flyby, you know, a flyover of all the different scenarios in which 
Paul um, cites where they are divided, where they are arguing and bickering and have divided into camps and said us versus them uh, and shows how, no, you have, to be, you have to come together, reconcile, and be one. So we're just going to do a flyover here. And first, right off the bat, it's one of the first things Paul talks about where they have divided over which spiritual leaders are better. So they were saying, oh, I'm of Apollos. Oh, I follow the teaching of Peter. Oh, well, I only listen to things Paul says. And they've developed, you know, kind of what we call this hero worship of, oh, my guy's better than your guy or my guy's smarter than your guy or I only listen to him because I think he's right. And when we hear these, these arguments or divisions that the Corinthians were creating in their churches, um, I don't know if you have this experience, but sometimes when I read biblical characters' stories, I have developed this thing where I think it's easy to point fingers at them and say, give me a break, it's so obvious, how do you miss that? Or how do you argue over that? That's so petty. But in looking at these, I think the things the Corinthians argued about were not petty things. They weren't stupid things. They are real-life hard, heavy, weighty matters that they really were passionately debating and trying to figure out how to be a church together but disagree on these really difficult, weighty things. And suddenly they've become not so petty and they become not so stupid, uh, but really meaningful things to debate and figure out together. So when I hear them say, oh, I follow Apollos or Paul or Peter, and they have this hero worship mentality going on, I think, oh, it's easy for me to say, oh, I follow this professor, or oh, I follow you know, this speaker, Franklin Graham or John MacArthur, fill in the blank of the guy you like best. Um, or, oh, I, I'm an evangelical, not a Catholic. Or, oh, I, I don't do the orthodox, you know, those orthodox people, they're weird. Um, but acknowledging these different schools of thought that can often push us into these different camps. Um, but Paul says... Only God gives spiritual growth. So come together, reconcile, and be one. The next big disagreement that Paul addresses with them is what counts as sexual sin. He talks about this in 1 Corinthians 5, uh, and then later in 2 Corinthians 2 as kind of a follow-up to 1 Corinthians 5. Um, but the Corinthians were really debating over what counts as sexual sin. And they had said that this guy in their church who was sleeping with his stepmom was totally okay. And there were some people in their church who thought, big deal, why, why are we even talking about this? And to our Western sensibilities, maybe that feels like, oh my gosh, I can't even imagine you thinking that's okay. How could you ever think that that's totally not okay? But uh, those are, sexual sin is a sticky, difficult issue that I think every culture probably deals with, and we're no exception. So when, when they say, oh, that's totally fine, I think maybe for us it may be difficult to parse out or discern uh, what, what does count as sexual sin in our culture. You know, pornography, uh, sexual or emotional affairs, divorce, uh, remarriage, uh, gender transition, sex before marriage, gay sex, what does count as sexual sin? And suddenly it becomes a very rele you know, relevant, uh, pertinent issue of, ooh, how do we do that? How do we do that as how are we the church well? How do we line up with what scripture says? 
And it can be really easy to divide into camps and to develop strong feelings. And there's nothing wrong with strong feelings. But I think Paul is really cautioning them against don't divide each other. Don't divide the church into what you think. Oh, he thinks that, but she thinks this. But Paul just says at the end, the body is not meant for sexual immorality because your bodies are members of Christ himself. So live in a way that you're mindful that your bodies are members of Christ himself. The next big dispute that Paul addresses with them is just how to settle disputes. And they had gotten so heated with each other, they had gone toe-to-toe so strongly and vehemently with each other that they were taking each other to court. And they were suing each other, you know, suing the socks off each other. And Paul says, oh my gosh, what are you doing? No, no, no. Because they were cheating and wronging each other to the extent that they needed a third party to settle the argument settled the dispute. And I don't think that's too far-fetched. I don't think that's such a foreign idea. I think uh, it can be easy for us to similarly say, oh, well, legal litigation uh, you know, puts things right. Legal litigation is only fair. It gives me justice, or it makes them pay, or it makes them suffer like I suffered. But Paul says, why not be wronged? Uh, Why not be wrong? The fact that you have lawsuits among you means you've been completely defeated already. So instead, come together, be reconciled, and be one. Right after that, I mean, it just never stops. They just have disagreement after dispute after discord. Uh, He addresses the situation where they have this big discussion going in their church about if or when marriage is a good thing and how married people should relate to each other. It sounds like it's this big ongoing argument in their church, and people feel strongly around multiple different sides of the aisles, and they feel strongly about it, and they cannot agree. So they've written Paul asking him, if or when is marriage a good thing? And so Paul responds in chapter 7 and 11 uh, about marriage. And it sounds like they have said that either that married people should just be good roommates, or maybe a divorce is okay because maybe singlehood is better than being married. And it sounds like they're confused and, and hesitant to say that marriage is even a good thing. And so they've prioritized singlehood over being married and said one is more spiritual, one is more godly than the other. And I don't know that that's such a foreign idea. That may not be so far-fetched. Perhaps in our culture we flip it. And we may say, you know, especially the Christian culture, say marriage is the best. The super spiritual people are married, and singlehood is for second-rate Christians. But that's not what Paul says. Paul addresses that and says each person should live as a believer in the situation the Lord has assigned to him. And that there shouldn't be second-rate or second-class Christians. That you should come together, reconcile, and be one church. The next big thing right after that in 1 Corinthians 8 through 10 is they have this big discussion about rights and our freedom in Christ. And they had had this big ongoing discussion in their church about is it okay to eat meat sacrificed to idols? And some people felt really strongly that, oh my gosh, no, you don't sacrifice, you don't eat meat sacrificed to idols because that gives the wrong impression of who Christians are supposed to be. And then you had these other people who said, give me a break. It's just meat. No big deal. 
And so these people are going toe-to-toe over which is the way, what is the way the church should act, what is the way Christians should act. And if, I don't know if to you that, that, uh, that tension or that argument feels oddly familiar because I think that's probably close to the same uh, debate we have about tattoos. Can I get a tattoo? Oh my gosh, I can't believe you would do that. That's not how Christians are supposed to look. What do you mean? <laughs> it's just a tattoo. Or uh, do I have to wear a mask? Kind of an ongoing debate right now. I have a right. What about my rights, how they impact people? And at the end of whatever area you fall on that, on either of those, for the Corinthians or for us, Paul says, you're no worse if you do eat, no better if you don't, but be careful that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. So consider others. Come together. Reconcile and be one. Paul also then addresses how this division is coming out when they celebrate communion and remember the Lord's Supper. And so how they remember the Lord's Supper and then provide for each other equally is totally out of whack. Uh, In this section, Paul talks about how um, your gatherings are no good because you harm each other in them. They do more harm than good. And so in, in this section, Paul is addressing how they have divided over uh, whether, how to celebrate communion. Uh, they've said it's okay to prioritize some people over others and to have cliques and to get drunk while others go hungry. And so when they were celebrating communion, some people would get, uh, drink all the wine and leaving others to have none. But, and when they would have church potlucks, you know, the equivalent of our church potlucks, some people would get in line first and eat all the food and leave none for others. So they were prioritizing some over others and uh, not making sure everyone was equally cared for. And I don't know if that's, uh, that, that can be very similar to us. I think we can relate to that. Of, uh, I don't know, in your household growing up, but in mine, um, it, was, it was seen as okay or very common at the least to bicker on our way to church and then have no problem taking communion. And Paul says, well, that doesn't work. That's not how communion is supposed to go. You're supposed to have good communion with each other, good fellowship with each other, be in right relationship with each other, and then express that is expressing right relationship with me, with the Lord. And that, that's, that's a difficult pull of Paul saying, yes, in every area of the church expression, you have to come together, reconcile, and be one. Uh, yeah, when Paul, and Paul says, when you gather to eat together, you should all eat together. So don't prioritize some people in line first to the potluck and relegate others to being last. Eat all together. Prioritize each other equally. The next one, uh, he addresses in, at the end of 1 Corinthians, he said they have this debate going on whether some spiritual gifts are better than others or if they even need some spiritual gifts. You know, some, can we just write those off? Or do we re- are they even valuable? And Paul, uh, they, Paul addresses that debate going on in their church where they've looked at some people in their church and they've said, ah, I don't know that you contribute. Is your spiritual gift even needed? Is it even necessary? And I think in their, in their church they were saying the big spiritual gifts, you know, the big ones are flashier and better. And the behind-the-scenes ones are for second-class Christians who don't have much of anything to contribute or don't contribute much at all. And I think for us, that can also be tempting to say the big ones are flashier and better. 
the behind the scene ones are for second class Christians who don't have much or anything to contribute. But Paul says that's not the case. The greatest gift is love. You have to use your gifts, whatever they are, for loving each other. So come together, reconcile, and be one. Uh, the, uh, the next big one I think Paul addresses is this big debate in their church or concern or second thoughts about whether or not generosity is worth it. And how do we express our unity with other Christians um, who are far away or not like us? How do we express our unity with them and is being generous to them even worth it? I think the Corinthians, when they're having these second thoughts about do we support the Jerusalem Christians, their second thoughts were along the lines of we like the idea of financially supporting other Christians in need, but we don't know if now is a good time or we don't know if they're a good investment. And they were debating that and having second thoughts about that. And similarly, it can be easy for me to say I hate injustice and I support change that brings equality, but I haven't found a good group that advocates perfectly So I can't support those Christians or that organization or movement because it's not perfect. So I'm just not going to do anything. But Paul says, the goal is equality implemented in tangible ways. You have to start somewhere. So come together, reconcile, and be one. I think this one actually is uh, incredibly pertinent to us and what's going on in our city right now. Um, of of us wanting and having a desire to pursue justice and pursue equality? And how do we express unity with other Christians who are perhaps different than us? Uh, And how do we act as the church in pursuing that justice? And how do we do that maybe when we don't like the means or the methods? And uh, if you haven't read um, Martin Luther King Jr.'s letter from Birmingham jail. I'd highly recommend it. But he speaks directly to this, and he writes directly to uh, his white Christian and Christian brothers and sisters, the clergy, people um, who are in the church, leading churches at the time. And he says, I must make two honest confessions to you, my Christian and Jewish brothers. First, I must confess that over the last few years, I've been gravely disappointed with the white moderate. I've also reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's stumbling block in the stride towards freedom is not the white citizens' council or the Ku Klux Klanner, but the white moderate who is more devoted to order than to justice, who prefers a negative peace, which is the absence of tension, to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice, who constantly says, I agree with you in the goal you seek, but I can't agree with you in your methods of direct action who paternalistically feels that he can set the timetable for another man's freedom, who lives by the myth of time and constantly advises advises the Negro to wait until a more convenient season. Shallow understanding from people of goodwill is more frustrating than absolute misunderstanding from people of ill will. Lukewarm acceptance is much more bewildering than outright rejection. He wrote that in 1963. And I think, uh, I don't know about you, but that rings true for me too. Yes, I want to agree with justice and I want to pursue equality. And Paul says, that's good. But you have to find tangible ways of doing that. Tangible ways of coming together and reconciling and being agents of reconciliation and being one. 
Uh, and if none of those hit you, if none of those resonate, Paul has this massive catch-all at the end of 2 Corinthians 12, where he says, literally anything else, I believe there are dis- there's discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish, am- selfish ambition, slander, gossip, arrogance, and disorder that he senses in them. And uh, those are just human qualities. <laughs> and I wonder, it causes me to pause and say, what does the Holy Spirit sense in me? What does the Holy Spirit sense in us? Does he sense those things in me or sense those things in us? I think in my life where those things are the quickest to pop up most recently is the hot topics. When those hot topics come up, you know, that topic that really bothers you or burns you, uh, you know, like the biggest ones off the top of my head are racial inequality or the Black Lives Matter movement or party politics or anything about COVID-19. And it's easy for these to be lightning rods uh, that create division in our families, in our friend groups, in our work circles, um, on Facebook, in our church. But Paul says, come together, reconcile, and be one. When we talk about these things with our brothers and sisters, do we exchange harsh words that divide us into camps? Or do we strive for unity and peace? Uh, Paul says, come together, reconcile, and be one. Um, at this point, I've either uh, got you thinking about that, that one topic that really bothers you, uh, where you really disagree with someone and are going through the list of reasons in your head why you're right and they're wrong, um, or if you're anything like me, it's easy for you to sketch out and size up what those people are really like if they really believe that and create an us versus them line in the sand, which seems like the righteous thing to draw and defend. Or maybe you're reliving throbbing pain that comes from a relationship or a situation where you're deeply wronged and egregious sin was committed against you, uh, ripping open unbridgeable divides and leaving jagged scars. In either case, or maybe others, Uh, Maybe reconciliation seems unlikely and unreasonable or unfair. Maybe reconciliation seems like it ignores or denies or dismisses or diminishes or excuses uh, terrible things that we've experienced, its impact and their effect. Maybe we don't want reconciliation because reconciliation would require we lay down our executioner's acts uh, that they absolutely deserve. And yes, in this world, uh, reconciliation is unlikely, it's unreasonable, and it's unfair. Yes, in this world, uh, far too often, weak and empty apologies are exchanged and excused in the name of reconciliation, leaving us feeling dismissed and diminished. In this world, reconciliation is no insurance against future harms. And yes, in this world, we're told that revenge tastes sweet and will buffer heartache until the next offense. Uh, So uh, slay as many enemies now as possible. Uh, But praise be to God, the Father of Jesus, who stood on the chopping block on my behalf that I absolutely deserved and took the axe when reconciliation between us was unlikely, unreasonable, and unfair. Praise be to God when despite my weak and empty apology, 
dismissing his blood that brought my healing, exposing him to my future offenses. Uh, he reached out in love and forgiveness towards me so that we could come together, be one, and reconcile. Praise be to God who t took on the work of soothing my throbbing pains and uh, done by others and committed to slowly bridging the chasms that I had dynamited. And praise be to God who bring, brought me into a family of thems uh, that I'd written off as those people and slowly and methodically erased lines I had drawn in the sand to encircle a family that redefines my view of us. Throughout 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Paul is impressing upon the Corinthians and us that because of the reconciliation we've received from the Father through Jesus, we should reconcile with each other when we're divided, forgive, and pursue unity. So as, as I and we think through how do we respond in reconciliation uh, to what Paul has shared with the Corinthians, I think first and foremost, uh, we have to ask, have we been reconciled with the Father? Have we responded to the gospel and received his reconciliation in our lives? And then how can we hold fast to the gospel and hold fast to the gospel in a way that causes it to spring forth in love and forgiveness and reconciliation to the people around us? Uh, where are we aware of God's reconciliation work in our lives? Do we see God working out reconciliation and restoring relationships in our lives? And finally, what disagreements or divisions do we have among us? How can we come together, reconcile, and be one? Let me go ahead and pray for us. Father, thank you so much for reaching out towards us, uh, reaching out to us, a people who were not your people and had no interest in you and had spurned you and hurt you and hurt each other and hurt ourselves, but uh, you reached out to us uh, through your most precious uh, thing, your son, Jesus, and you sent him to die in our behalf, on my behalf, uh, when we needed you most. Father, we desire to be a people who um, realize just how much we have been forgiven. And like the woman with Jesus, we desire to love much in return and to lavish our love on you in gratitude for the reconciliation you've extended to us. And then as well, in turn, um, lavish our love and offer reconciliation on the people around us. Uh, Father, would you please bring healing to um, our body and to our city um, and make us agents of reconciliation that absorb pain and absorb suffering um, and in turn extend uh, reconciliation and forgiveness and love to the people around us. Father, would you please change us first uh, and plant and instill the gospel in us and cause it to spring forth um, in abundant life in, in our body and in our city. In your name we pray. Amen.